This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations of people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined also from Dunedin by Samuel Murray, who uh, works in policy for CCS Disability Action. Welcome, Sam. Hello, everyone. Two Sams in one place. How will the world cope? I don't know. <laughs> Two SMs as well. Oh, I know. Just gets better. When I was little, I wanted to have my middle name be Anthony. Oh, I, was, nice. I worked out when I was quite small that having initials that also spelt Sam would be really cool. <laughs> but I don't, have a, I don't have a middle name, so there is a space for me to add one. Oh, you should do it. You should do it. <laughs> so where are you in Dunedin, Sam? Oh, so I'm actually down on Portsmouth Drive at the moment, calling in from our um, local office of CCS Dispatch here. Right next to the um, the sculptures there, the teeth, the molars, which I, I quite like. I, I know they're controversial. You have to say that quietly. Yeah, I know. I think people have forgotten about it. Post-stadium, no, no one's interested in that anymore. <laughs> so how was your bubble life? How was, well, it's going back a year now. How was your lockdown? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, it was certainly challenging. So I've, I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old, um, a little well, probably two-year-old back then, um, and so it was pretty challenging. And we were both working, my uh, my partner and myself, in a, a small house. And there wasn't much space, to be honest with you. Didn't, certainly didn't have an office or anything like that. I was just um, operating out of the lounge in terms of work. And uh, wow, yeah, we're just juggling, basically just juggling a, a toddler. And we're kind of taking in turns. Both our um, uh, employers were um, very understanding and kind of allowed for a lot of flexibility in terms of the the. The time you're doing work so often i'll do work a bit more in the evenings and stuff like that and also start early as well so um toddler was a great alarm clock at getting me up at six in the morning because i was working from home i just <laughs> start and then yeah usually i do a lot of the mornings and then i'd often take him, him out in the afternoon out for the two hours of uh um exercise and and and, and my partner would have a chance to spend the afternoon working so we just did it like that i I can't hear my heart say we we got forty hours um each week, but we um yeah we it was workable it was it was work workable but yeah it was certainly tough and I know many people had it tougher but yeah having having a toddler especially especially the two year old you know even now he actually um can do puzzles and watch TV but back when he was yeah he might have been a bit under two actually yeah he couldn't. You couldn't actually leave him unsupervised because he'd put something in his mouth or pull something down or try and climb a shelf. So, yeah, I, I, I really felt for everyone who had children just in that age range of, I don't know, one year to two years where they're walking, they're mobile, but they're not really sitting down watching things or anything or doing puzzles. They, they really need you there the whole time. Lots of people have been saying that they actually found the time 
at home more productive and that that has carried on, that they are working from home and it's not just taking the, the commute out of the occasion, they're actually able to concentrate better at at work. Have you carried on, concentrate better than at work, have you carried on working from home or has the, 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 the two-and-a-half-year-old taken that out of the <laughs> equation? No, no, I, I have an occasion. Um, I, I still work from home maybe one day a week or so. Um, and, you know, I, I, it can be um, more productive. You're certainly uh, not interrupted as much too in terms of meetings. And uh, yeah, there, there was a lot of uh, advantages. It was quite interesting actually because quite a lot of my work uh, involved, say, working with government and working with officials. And it was interesting um, having conversations with officials where they would be at their home and I'd be at my home. And it was just a bit of a different vibe. And it was yeah. that, you know, I always felt there's something that encouraged a bit more collaboration because instead of being in your workplace surrounded by your colleagues and con- having that as the kind of dominant influence, all of a sudden your colleagues were on the same level as people external in terms of contacting you. They they were just ones that called you up. So, you know, obviously there's some challenges there, but I, I don't know. I felt that that almost led to some better interactions because you could actually, yeah, calling each other from home, even just a bit psychologically, um, level the playing field rather than them calling from a busy office in Wellington and I'm calling from, from my office down here. And, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I thought there was something to that. Yeah, you might be somebody very important, but you're still at home the same as I am and you're still wearing your pajamas and you're still surviving a pandemic. <laughs> That's right. And you can still hear kids in the background and that kind of thing. So, yeah, no, it did. It did. It helped. Level the playing field a little bit. So what work do you do for, well, you better tell people what CCS Disability Action is oh, first. yeah, sure. So um, CCS Disability Action, it's a, it's a very old organisation. It um, goes all the way back to 1935, actually, uh, after the polio epidemic and was um, predominantly focused on uh, uh, children and adults who had had polio. These days it's a, it's a, it's a pan-disability organisation, which means it um, covers all sorts of impairments and disabilities. It's not impairment specific like a lot of organizations are like blind and low vision for example or idea services ihc um, so we do everything the core of our work is really uh supporting people for a whole whole variety of contracts and kind of um whole different ways children adults family bar now i'm a little bit unusual in, in that i work in the policy team which is a, a very small team that consists of myself and um phoebe eden man who you may know, know very well <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and occasionally we, we we have an intern as well. Um, but yeah, my role is more focused around the um, advocacy side, talking to governments, submissions to government, meetings with uh, ministers and, and uh, members of parliament. Also, also trying to do some more public stuff uh, in terms of blogs and, and radio and, and, and that as well. And also working with like-minded groups as well. So um, I've done a lot of work for the Child Poverty Action Group. Phoebe's done a lot of work with the children's sector in general. Uh, and Back for Kids and Five for Thrive, two of the all kind of umbrella organisations she's worked with. So yeah, it's it's very varied. Um, I, I also do quite a lot of uh, data work um, in, in terms of statistics and, and publishing those at a very kind of um, uh, medium level, you might say. <laughs> Just a, I'm not a proper statistician or, or data analyst. I'm more taking um, uh, stats at a certain level and, and just getting them out in a public format. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have Tears for Fears shout, why this one? Oh, gosh. I, so, so me and a friend always used to, to, to go home on a Friday um, 
Yeah, this is the song we also always used to play when we started our Friday <laughs> night, to be honest, when I was flapping. So, <laughs> I don't know. We, do, we didn't have a lot of CDs, and this is pre, you know, the day of de- music on demand. But, but we, we both genuinely like it. It's a great song. It's a classic. How did the disability sector cope with the the lockdown and beyond? Oh gosh, um, big topic. Uh, variety of effects. Um, a lot that was really challenging. Um, some stuff that was actually quite positive. Uh, maybe I'll start with some of the positive stuff because because that might surprise people. But uh, some of the things that a lot of disabled people have been asking for for a long time and were told it was impossible were all of a sudden not impossible. Yeah. 
but you know, there's, there's actually been quite a lot of the same people who have actually asked for, say, um, being able to view classes remotely or, or being able to join meetings remotely and always told, no, we can't do that, it's too hard, it's too hard to set things up to, 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 to allow sort of virtual participation. And all of a sudden overnight, no, it wasn't too hard because we had to do it. So <laughs> whether the world, there's a way. Um, and also too, with lots of the support, for, for years there's been all these rules around, oh, to use this support you need to um, do this process, it can only be used for these things, you know, like the care support, which is a form of request quite had all these rules about what can and can't be used for. And of course, with all the chaos, all the um, the, the ministry and the, and the need assessment service coordination agency, sorry, it's for that jargon but that's what they're called for some reason um had to throw the rules out overnight and say actually no we're you know because this stuff isn't available i'll tell you what we, we're just going to give you the money and you just try and find some use for it and in, in, in terms of what you wanted which is what people have been asking for for years to be honest mm-hmm. for a lot of the stuff so yeah so on the positive side which may surprise some people overnight a lot of things that were impossible all of a sudden weren't impossible um, and in fact, in, in many cases, we tried to, to lock in some of those changes around the flexibility and around um, having those uh, options to attend stuff virtually. I mean, on the challenging front, obviously, um, it became uh, quite difficult to get a lot of support. Well, we organisations like ours still tried to keep up the essential support in terms of kind of the um, stuff people really needed. But obviously, there's a lot of more um, other support that's really useful to someone, but it's not life and death that had to stop i know people just struggle a lot with say um uh the supermarket situations where people uh who genuinely needed that sort of um delivery option and finding just all the slots were booked for yeah days and just a bit of frustration around that in terms of um that some of those people in those slots maybe didn't need those maybe they just you know and 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 perhaps uh some of those slots could have been saved kind of for people who really need them as uh, I don't quite know where they got to, but in a lot of cases, it's just kind of first come, first serve. So that, so that was that was a big challenge. Um, but yeah, there, there, there was a lot of positives. We, we we did a bit of a strategic debrief afterwards and kind of met in groups and talked about it. And yeah, the, the feedback was from some people where they'll, yeah, some changes that they actually wanted were actually made because of the pandemic. And it does really shine a light on what's possible in terms of um, government action. Know, things that have been told that are too hard or we can't spend that money because it's not if it's a situation like that they find the money they 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 can get rid of rules overnight it turns out um if they really have to so yeah that that, that was certainly a bit of an eye-opener and we have tried to use that to suggest them to, to lock in some of those more positive changes and yet some stuff has carried on like um gosh i remember uh, a meeting i uh a group i was part of um always used to insist on meeting physically in Wellington. And I remember a couple of times I'd have a cold or something and I'd call them up and say, look, I'm really keen to attend. I've only got a cold, but I don't want to go there in person because you probably don't want to be in a small room with a person with a cold. And they'll just say, look, no, it's impossible. We, we can't set up Zoom or a teleconference. Absolutely impossible. And of course, you know, um, during the pandemic, they moved to virtual and, and it's stuck. So they, they still have a physical meeting where people who are in Wellington go to it if they can. But then the remainder of the participants just call in and wow it's great but it's just amazing before then loads of people would just say no to that but say no no we either have physical or virtual we we can't have some sort of mixed meeting where half the people are there physically and mm-hmm. and you know how that even work how do we set that up i don't know how to use technology you know all these kind <laughs> <Yeah>. of excuses <laughs> so i yeah there's been positives for sure so you talk about locking in those particular things do you think we can lock in the the fact that we 
can do stuff, the fact that we can be flexible. Has, is that sticking? Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, it has in some cases. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I was talking to um, someone who, who has been involved in running HUI um, for, for a lot of um, disabled Māori people, and they had always run it physically. And then, of course, during the lockdown, and they had strong beliefs about the importance of a physical meeting. And during the lockdown, they obviously had to adapt. And it was interesting hearing them afterwards. They sort of talked about they'll probably go to a mixed model. They they still believe that the physical meetings can be, still be important and stuff. But they understand now that you can actually do stuff virtually, and, and it is meaningful and it does work. Um, it's got its own challenges, and and um, you need to work through those. But it it definitely can work. And I am seeing some people locking it in. I think I think that probably is what a lot of people are doing is that hybrid approach where they're not wholly moving away from the old way of doing things, but they are trying to pick up the bits that did seem to work well and just giving people more options. So, I mean, look, we've, most people still come into the office, but we've certainly relaxed the requirement too. And, yeah, like myself, a lot of people will spend one day a week at home now. And if people need to spend more, that's fine too. And, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where we finally settle on because you never know how, long, uh, how much change is actually going to last. But it certainly feels like we might settle on a midway point, perhaps, between what happened in lockdown and the old ways. Do you think there's a danger of becoming <laughs> too flexible? And here's, here's, here's my little thought process that I'm going through. If, if somebody can't get to meetings because of a disability then there's two things that have to happen. One of them, or two alternatives, one of them is that you make alternative access for them to get to so they can get there virtually. Or you could actually, let's characterise, fix the steps, put a ramp mm. in. Is there a danger of, of that fixing the ramp solution dropping away because we've got an easier alternative? Yeah, that's, that's a very legitimate fear because it provides an easy way out to so someone, yeah. And, yeah, so someone, someone's preference might be to actually attend physically, and they're told, oh, no, no, there's no need for that because we've got a, a remote option and we, we don't want to change the, yeah. the steps. So you can just do that. No, I, I, I totally see the um, danger you're talking about there. Um, I guess the two things there is, is the focus should be on the person's preference. So rather than just going, oh, no, no, don't, don't worry, we've, we've, we've got this other option, you know, you actually got to listen to the person. They're saying, no, actually, I would like to attend at least some lectures in person. Uh, and, yeah, like I said, maybe that's why we have gone to more of the hybrid than kind of going too strong the other way. Because you don't want to make assumptions the other way too where we're going, oh, look, you know, only only work from home, you know. I think it's important that if someone wants it, there should be a desk available for them in the workplace as well, um, even if they are spending a lot of time at home. Um, and, yeah, yeah, no, but that, that's, that's a great point. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, he kia koutou, koutou Hope you're all having this day, beautiful stars and your beloved universe. I really hope, wherever you are, if it's happening around this journey that we're on together, it's proving to be rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more who you are, the triumph of nature's art perfect unique and here thank you so i know that for all of us we've been through so many changes we've had to learn so many ways of doing that and we've had to really call upon our deep preserves of intestinal fortitude mother would say 
in order to get through the last several months together. And very luckily for us here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we are now all in level one, which is amazing. And this is really a testament to our ability to work together as a dream team of five million. And of course, the wonderful leadership and guidance that we've been lucky enough to be bearing the benefit of. I'm so grateful. And I know that for many of us around the world, this is not the case. My beautiful mothers in the UK, and I know many of us have loved ones in different parts of the world. We just have to do what we can to support them. I'm so grateful I can talk to her every day and hear how she's getting on. I do my best to offer love and support. We can, of course, feel that love at a distance. We can, of course, share that love at a distance. Distance doesn't really mean it for love. And... Something else that I've been really struck by, of course, over this time is the importance for all of us to share how we're feeling, how these changes have affected us, how we're feeling day to day. We might move through many different states of being, but to feel that we can talk about it with someone who cares is so important. And, of course, we can also reciprocate this. We can be there for those we love make sure they feel they can share anything with us and we will be open to loving and accepting them and that reality that they're experiencing. I know that for many of us it can be challenging to share our feelings and can be challenging to acknowledge our feelings. Societally and culturally we're often conditioned to feel that only certain feelings are appropriate to share. Other feelings we can be encouraged to feel uh, burdensome to those around us when we share them. And of course, sometimes we are best to speak to a person who's trained in the realm of dealing with these different states of being. And it's not appropriate to talk to our closest friends and whānau. It's better to go and see somebody who's specifically trained in this work. But I really hope that for all of you, you have been able to find this compassion around you, this support around you, that you've been able to share how you're feeling and feel that you're being listened to. And most fundamentally of all, I hope you are able to offer yourself this compassion, that you know that you're on your own side. And when you are moving through these different states, that you allow this movement to take place, that you know that the more you care for yourself and hold yourself, the more that you show love and compassion and understanding for yourself, the better you'll be able to move through these different states and come to a new point of awareness for the triumph of nature that you are. Thank you again for having me and I look forward to talking to you again tomorrow. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Sam Murray. Do you think we're getting there? I mean, in terms of the, the the inclusion, the empowering, all of those sorts of words for people with disabilities? Ah, oh, it's a good question. I was, I was having a chat to, to someone this morning, actually, um, Umi, who works at Donna Beasy Institute, um, about this. New Zealand's actually quite advanced, although that's not to say there's still not a uh, significant distance to go, kind of in the disability leadership space and, and a lot of that stuff. I mean, I, I don't know if people know, but we're... We, we did a bit of a historic achievement where there's this um, UN body that um, uh, the Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities 
and we were the first nation to ever uh, nominate someone with a learning disability for that committee. Um, Robert Martin is his name, and he and he and he won, um, and he, he's on the committee. In fact, he's up for a, a vote. I haven't tracked whether he's won the second vote, but he was there for at least one term and hopefully two terms. So we do very well on that front. Where we tend to fall down a lot more is on the more material front, on living standards, particularly for folks on those lower incomes. So we still see um, a lot of terrible stats around, um, particularly disabled people under 65, uh, Māori and Pacifica disabled people. Um, there's still an over-representation uh, in terms of people living in poverty and material hardship. I don't know. I mean, you can make a bigger point about New Zealand tending to lean that way as well, where we're we're actually we we're very good at the the leadership side of things and, and kind of saying the right thing, and that stuff's important. It's le legitimately important as we learn, uh, but we don't always quite match that up with providing a good standard of living to to all our citizens. And we can, yeah, it should be something that goes together, but there is a risk of it being a bit of an either or, where we um yeah we focus so much on that that we convince ourselves we've done a great job and don't need to worry about you know. The basics like um like the uh, the levels of the benefit and, and in the case of disability we've, we've got still quite well we've got prehistoric kind of disability allowance systems that are just um well they, they date from 1975 and they're just not fit for purpose at all so a lot of that material stuff is still quite far behind like i said i i, I don't want to oversell the leadership stuff because there's still quite a lot there and i'm sure many might uh, hear that would uh, object to that but um I just feel that perhaps we've made more progress there, and we now need to to keep making progress there, but bring the material stuff up as well, through um changes to income support and and making support easy to use and um, more adequate. When the government shifted focus to focus on the well-being, mm -hmm. and for the first couple of years, most people ignored it and said, "Yeah, that's very nice, but where's the money?" Um, and I think that one of the things that came through from the pandemic response was that well-being actually became a thing. You know, mm. This is the basis for policy. I'm just wondering in the if if we're moving if we are moving to that kind of lens for 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 government policy or for how society operates, what do we need to do to that lens to make sure it's got a disability as a lens a filter on that mm, yeah oh, it's 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 a great question i mean one of the uh, big things that try to get underway is is the better data because a lot of those decisions about well-being are made around data the key thing though with well-being and disability is to make sure that people realize that um there's a lot that's changeable in terms of government support in terms of wider society the the big problem with disability advocacy is that you end up inadvertently just feeding some neg negative stereotypes about disability. So, so, you know, yeah, highlight some negative outcomes. You go, look at these terrible outcomes. And that just kind of reinforces some people's mind, oh, yeah, because that's because of, you know, impairment, that's because of disability. Rather than putting the spotlight on the support services not being adequate, being, you know, putting the spotlight on access concerns such as the steps uh, and the wider society support, uh, support and also the negative attitudes and, and kind of that kind of stuff. So that's always what's needed for the wellbeing lens is to make sure you, you've got the focus there on, on the changeable aspects, which are huge. Um, you can have a very philosophical argument about what the limits of the changeable aspects might be, but I, I, I think that's largely a red herring in the sense that we can all, well, 
the data, I'll, I'll put, it, put it this way, the evidence shows that there is a, a, a lot of changeable elements in our society and in the way the government operates that would raise the well-being of disabled people in their far now if changes are made. So that's always kind of the lens you want with the um, well-being. The other aspect is probably um, to give people a sense of the size of the issue because there is always a tendency of disability to assume it's quite a small issue. So there's actually some child poverty stats out the, um, the other day. Uh, for the first time ever, actually, uh, the other day being two days ago, um, that showed, so you, say, so you have about 100,000 disabled children, but you actually have about 300,000 children who live in a household with at least one disabled family member. And that's where you start getting to the importance of, particularly for material hardship and poverty, it's not about individuals, it's about the household, it's about the far now. So, I mean, if disabled children are more likely to live in poverty, which they are, uh, that means their siblings are more likely to live in poverty. That means their parents more look like to live in poverty. If disabled adults are more likely to live in poverty, which which they are, um, that means their children are more likely to live in poverty. So you can see that when you're looking at disability-related spending and you go, oh well, you know, we'd like to spend more, but we we don't have enough, and you know, it only affects X number of people. It's much broader than that in terms of its impact. And you're also talking about a population that's um, uh, got a higher as where Māori and Pacifica are overrepresented. So it's also feeding into and fueling some of the ethnic-related inequality that we see as well. So it's all connected. It's not that disability is a thing over here that we can kind of cordon off and not worry about. And oh yeah, if we've got any money left over, we might try and do something nice. It's kind of central to the issues we're seeing around inequality and around well-being as well. We can't get to a high level of well-being for New Zealand without tackling disability as quite a core issue. There was actually um. Oh, I'm going to mangle his name, Atomir Sen, uh, a, a quite famous um, philosopher and an economist, actually, but welfare economist, um, who really noted this, uh, maybe about 2000, oh, probably a bit earlier than that, but he published it in a book 2010 that, that, that I read, where he pointed this out. So he's quite famous for his work and well-being, and he says disability is central to this work and well-being, but what he saw is that a lot of governments and a lot of uh, people working in the space just ignored disability, and, and, and his... Yeah, he used an interesting word. He said that was smug. They were kind of smug about the disability-related inequality. They, they didn't consider it important or it could be something that could be parceled off. Uh, and, yeah, he just didn't see. He just says, look, if you look at just straight evidence, even without anything else, it's clear that it's um, central to the discussion. I know that for individuals, you try and avoid a deficit model. So you're, you're very much trying to work with individuals in terms of strengths. If we scale that up to the work you do for the community, for society, how do you manage the balance between that positive, that telling good stories, and the 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 the, the negative, the the lack? Yeah, good question. Balance balance is definitely the right word. Um, it's something I've always wrestled with, to be honest. Uh, yeah, how do you how do you try and challenge the negative narrative? more the um, more positive examples while talking about the reality as well while making sure the re- reality is quite visible um, I've got to say despite having done this for nine and a half years <laughs> I don't have an answer to how you do that beyond you do balance it it's, it's certainly a discussion we have internally as well too. We, we have a strong um, same staff leadership team that this, this is one of the key things we're, we're always talking about because we are always wanting to let people know what the reality is in terms of material hardship um, once again, I guess the key thing is you really want to be pinpointing that the issues around, say, the material hardship, 
or the issues people are experiencing in terms of low um, poor well-being outcomes are directly relatable to, to key issues such as a lack of support and accessibility. And then you can use some of the more positive examples to show that it's not um, inevitable that, that with the right support, people can live uh, rich, fulfilling lives of high levels of well-being. But yeah, it is a tricky one. There, there is organisations that dedicate themselves solely to being positive, um, and and they do, and that's good, and they do a lot of good. But then they can fall down a little bit too when you know. Well, it's got to be true for people as well. And there is people out there on income support who are doing it really tough. So if all they're hearing is positive examples, they're going to say, "Hey, up, that's not." not gelling with my reality of actually struggling to afford enough food for a week, for example. And you must, do you avoid the 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 financial discussions? I'm thinking if you get into utilitarian type costing, if you look at the, the worth of investing in this swing for disabled, disabled children, then the, the cost per swing must be astronomical. But yeah, this, it's, hate... it's more than that, though, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, geez, this this was huge with the previous government, of course, because they had the investment approach, which did actually try and um, yeah, bring a lot of the stuff in. Yeah, it's the the costing side is is diff- I mean, the costing side is a little bit um, of a red herring in the terms that there's been a lot of research in the space, but there's just a million different ways to do it, and it's a bit of a, a hard one to do because. People will tally up the cost um, that they face. I know, I know you're talking about something different, which is what what, what the previous government really, really got quite heavy. Well, actually, sorry, I'll I'll take it a couple of steps back. Um, this really hit home with the previous government when they announced they were going to do the future welfare liability, which is where they predict what people's costs, um, sorry, the future costs people are going to ha- um, have for the government in terms of income support, and they claimed that this would result in um, the government prioritising the needs of, of those with the highest level of need. And then when I started seeing the reports, it just didn't. Like the people with the highest uh, future welfare liability were, of course, young disabled people on the support living payment because uh, quite a lot of them are on that support living payment for their whole life or for mm-hmm. certainly a long period of time. But they didn't want to support, um, focus on those. So instead you saw a focus on non-disabled youth, focus on sole parents, both groups that do also have and I, I, I remember actually talking to one, um, gosh, two of the ministers at the time. And I said, hey, you said this was going to focus on the most, you know, uh, those of the highest level need. But it's clearly not. Those with the highest future welfare liability are not getting prioritised. And one of the ministers said, well, yeah, of course, because we don't think they're going to get jobs. <laughs> and you kind of go, oh, yeah, okay. Um, so that's not true then, is it? <laughs> so obviously, in addition to doing the future welfare liability, you've also got this kind of judgement, which, A, we could, we could challenge that judgment in terms of actually with the right support, lots of people could come off that benefit. And B, even if we don't challenge that judgment, that's not what you were telling people would, would, would kind of happen. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a hard one. I mean, we all have different costs uh, to society over a lifetime, and it's quite hard to predict those. Um, and, and so, yeah, if you're going to apply a pure u- utilitarian lens over everything, then, um, well, it's going to be an interesting society for a startup. <laughs> People have tried to uh, apply very extreme utilitarian lenses uh, over everything and have ended up in some very interesting places that um, most of us would find very uh, uh, challenging to, to, to justify. I mean, there's two sides to the cost. There's, there's obviously the cost, but then there's also with, with the right support, what, what could the benefits be, especially if we're taking a more holistic look 
Um, yeah, and I mean, the bigger question is just what kind of society do we do we want to be? Are we a society that goes around, you know, um, just looking at people as being a, a monetary cost um, to us, to the government, and do we and do we just judge everything like that? I mean, where where does it leave our elderly? Where where does it leave uh, you know? Um, where does it leave lots of people actually? Where, 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 do, where does it even leave someone who's going to make a vital contribution to our society, but perhaps isn't going to earn a high wage, such as someone working in a supermarket, as we found out during the lockdown, who's very essential, but not earning a high wage? Should we value them less than a lawyer who's um, sitting at home, maybe not working during the lockdown? I don't know. I, well, actually, I do know. We shouldn't. Yes. <laughs> what am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> Others might disagree, but no, I'm, I'm very confident to say no, we shouldn't. So yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Utilitarianism has always been a big issue, actually, for, for disability rights and for disability equity. It was something, it, it's the reason why we did spend a lot of time on that investment approach, because that's what people have probably forgotten about now. This, this is the other thing of government. It's very faddy. Things come into, um, and then you get a change of government and everyone entirely forgets about it. Lots of people probably don't, don't even know what I'm talking about, but it was a big deal at the time. The the um, investment approach at its core was utilitarian. What was quite interesting, though, is so we did a lot of work to Productivity Commission. They took quite a lot of prodding to admit that. And a lot of their earlier work, they kind of basically implied that investment approach was a neutral approach, that it wasn't tied to any particular ideology or, or philosophy. But when we really pushed them on it, they said, okay, maybe it is really utilitarianism <laughs> but it took quite a lot of pushing this is always i mean I, I have a lot of time for economists and economics I, I do find their work very valuable but there is a certain type of economist who doesn't recognize that his uh or hers or theirs value system has got this very particular political philosophy called utilitarianism that actually there's many other political philosophies and that utilitarianism applied without any other principles, and I, the people who originally came up with utilitarianism, um, John Stuart Mill, I think, they they did use other principles. They never applied it just on its own. They would all say yes, but then we've got some overriding principles, so we don't end up, you know, in all sorts of. Oh, you can just yeah, the Ford experiments. You need the crazy places you could uh, end up. <laughs> like you know, oh well, not you know, but philosophers also um love their terrible example. Sorry, that this is a little bit of a segue, but I think it's an interesting one in the sense that um. A very good book I've, I've been reading by a, a philosopher who's actually a disabled person herself, but she um, felt compelled to write a book because she got into particularly this side of philosophy, I forget what it's called, the more kind of analytical side of it, because she loved it and she got involved with it. And she was very um, upset though, because when she got into it, she thought, oh, this would be a great tool for examining my life as a disabled person and the issues I experienced. But then when she got into it, she discovered in the literature, basically the only topics philosophers um, who do this, uh, the more analytical side, they really tackled around disability was when is it okay to, to have an abortion around a disabled um, uh, fetus? And she's like, that's it. Like, out of all the richness of my life as a disabled person, all the barriers, that's, and, you know, not to be too on the nose about it, but the philosopher, um, particularly those sorts of philosophers, aren't very diverse. So it was kind of, you know, mostly white middle-aged men talking about when it was okay to, <laughs> that, mm. that, that was what they had focused on in terms of disability. And she was quite horrified about that and um, wrote quite a good book uh, trying to tackle the topic herself. So there has been a real, um, yeah, and this Adam E. Sen's point as well, real undervaluing perhaps of, of the true experience of disability and exploring the whole experience, not just mm -hmm. treating it as kind of like 
oh, I don't know, almost an example for philosophical thought experiments. It's not really like a real person that we're thinking about their life in the holistic sense. It's just an abstract idea that we can then use in our thought experiments. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant, but I've uh, um, <laughs> spent a lot of time on that. And that. It's quite funny to think, though, that, yeah, a, a, a lot of it just, just doesn't mean anything to people anymore. It's just kind of disappeared, got up in smoke, the change of government. So let's take something that still does mean something to us. Let's take, aha, take on me, the greatest video of all time. Why this one? <laughs> oh, once again, it's, it's, it's the same friend, actually. We used to love that on our... We, we actually had a rule that this is back when we were younger and uh, skinnier. We always had to take our um, top off whenever we heard the song and dance. <laughs> always got kicked out of a few places, but it was a rule we held.
And some questions to end the show with. We've seen lots of societal change over the last year or so. What do you think is going to stick and what do you hope will stick? Oh gosh, I'll start for the hope will stick. I, I, I hope we will see spending in a different way. Um, I, I hope we will, um, yeah, have a more of a sense of we should be spending what it takes to, to get a fair go. I mean, you know, I'm not, I know, I know there is limited factors of spending, but I think we have been overly cautious about what the government spent. Um, and instead of just looking at the government spending isolation, we've really got to look at the wider economy. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're looking at the wider economy, for example, you, you might go, well, the government's managed to keep its spending in check. But meanwhile, housing is taking up more and more of our, our cost. And of course, I mean, just use a totally different example. In, in the States, you can see this where they don't have a publicly funded health system. But um, well, that's more arguable. But they don't have one as, as we have it. But their health costs as a proportion of what um, takes up the economy are huge. In, in terms of what people pay. So you, so you can't just look at things in terms of government spending. You've got to look at the cost of not spending in terms of what it does to the wider economy. And, I mean, that's really the reason I bring that up is, of course, that's really what the wage subsidies showed. It was a hugely expensive piece of work, but it was just super clear. Uh, so, sorry, super, I was going to say superly. That's not even a word. It was super clear that not doing it would have catastrophic effects for the economy. So even though not doing it would have saved the government money and they, they, their budget would have budget would have been a lot smaller the cost of not doing it was just too high to complement not taking action so it was a case of we need to spend what we need to spend to stabilize the economy so then we can be on a sustainable footing for the future so it would be good if more spending could be seen in that way rather than trying to pinch every dollar and as a result creating a lot of costs for wider society and for economies i mean actually for other government departments too fairly enough uh do i think that's going to stick i don't know um, I, get, I, I guess the bigger thing about that is kind of our attitude towards spending and towards helping others. Um, so far, I mean, I think you've talked about this. It does seem like people are taking well-being more seriously and taking each other's well-being more seriously. So for now, it seems like we are caring more. Um, so I'm, I really hope that it does stick and that kind of guides us into the future. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> So what lessons do you think we can take from the pandemic and the pandemic response for the sorts of problems that we face, the intergenerational ones, the ones that can't be fixed by staying at home and watching the TV, um, climate change, yeah. social justice? Yeah. Well, we're, uh, we should have already known this, but we're, we're all very interconnected and interwoven of each other's lives. And we can't help but affect others. And obviously a pandemic shows that an incredible um, incredible example in the sense that you know the actions of one person can then cause um, all sorts of things which isn't to blame that person but just we have such a huge impact on each other's lives um, so for, in terms of thinking about climate change and, and social justice we have tended to you know you can make the argument and I know it's a bit of a philosophical academic one that New Zealand has gone down since the 80s and 90s and more of an individual path for focusing on individuals and perhaps at most household units but that's, I don't think the future is going to let us think like that. We are going to have to think about uh, ourselves as a society as, and as a globe. You know, that's the only way we can really tackle things like climate change um, and also the social justice issues too. And in order to really tackle those, we actually have to have a much more, and I know this is something people have talked about for a long time, but hopefully it's about getting, getting more and more support from, from wider society to, to see ourselves in a much bigger sense. 
So the rest of the questions, are we going to do as quick fire because we're running out of time. What's the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Oh, gosh. I mean, um, I'll, well, it wasn't just me. In fact, none of the stuff's just me. But um, getting the, improving the disability data, improving what's released, um, I think that's foundational as for them making further changes. We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are on the team. What's the superpower that's got you into our mansion? <laughs> I think what really got me in, into policy was was an ability to, to, to be interested in most things and, and, and not get bored easily. I, I think that's a highly underrated um, attribute of a good policy person. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Yeah. Um... It's a great question. Can I answer this in a quick far way? Um, partially, partially. I'll put it this way. I, I yeah, yeah. So, no, so I'll, why partially? Gosh, so I'm very passionate, and I want to see the change. Oh, maybe I could just say yes, but I'm, I'm, I mean, I guess as part of policy, you are always chasing the evidence a little bit. Well, well the evidence is informing you. It's, it's, it's a bit complicated the, the relationship with evidence. So it is, yeah, it is interesting. You, you do end up in a lot of activist spaces. But I, I guess because you're following the evidence, that means you can't always follow people all the time. But I guess no activists can. Actually, maybe I should just say yes. I'm just going to try. Yes, yes. <laughs> so what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning other than a two-and-a-half-year-old? <laughs> Good question. Oh, yeah, look, I mean, just just the chance to chip in, make, make a difference whoever I can. It's always a team effort, but yeah. What's the biggest challenge you're looking forward to in the next couple of years? Oh, Lots of them. We've 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 actually hopefully got another child on the way. So that's in fact, this is, children are probably the biggest challenge. Let's be honest. Work can be hard at times, um, but yeah, ch children will challenge you in all sorts of ways. I mean, they challenge you in great ways in terms of um, focusing on your your yourself and how you know your emotions and all that too. Because you can't you can't give children a good environment without having some. Uh, I won't say control because control is too strong a word for it. Having some sense of your emotions and, and being able to get yourself in a good place. And yeah, yeah, big, big lesson there. Opportunity to nurture <laughs> rather than challenge. Yeah, that's the one. We're that's not allowed. To, we're not allowed to call them a problem. <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. Opportunity to nurture. <laughs> and lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Oh gosh. Um, Read the newspaper, you know. Um, we live in a world of information abundance, but I know a, a, a lot of journalism, especially a lot of investigative journalism, doesn't get read, you know. So take a break from from reading about your friends' latest escapades and, and go read um, some investigative journalism um, or go read the Target Daily Times. Read, read local. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you too, Sam. Ladies and gentlemen of the class of 99, Wear sunscreen. If I could offer you one tip for the future, sunscreen would be it. The long-term benefits of sunscreen have been probed by scientists, whereas the rest of my advice has no basis more reliable than my own meandering experience. I will dispense this advice now. Enjoy the power and beauty of your youth. Oh, never mind. You will not understand the power and beauty of your youth until they're faded. But trust me, in 20 years you'll look back at photos of yourself and recall in a way you can't grasp now how much possibility lay before you and how fabulous you really looked. You are not as fat as you imagine. 
Don't worry about the future. Or worry, but know that worrying is as effective as trying to solve an algebra equation by chewing gum. The real troubles in your life are apt to be things that never cross the worried mind. The kind that blindsides you at 4pm on Sad Idle Tuesday. Do one thing every day that scares you. Sing. Don't be reckless with other people's hearts. And don't put up with people who are reckless with yours. Floss. Don't waste your time on jealousy. Sometimes you're ahead. Sometimes you're behind. The race is long and in the end, it's only with yourself. Remember the compliments you receive. Forget the insults. If you succeed in doing this, tell me how. Keep your old love letters. Throw away your old bank statements. Don't feel guilty if you don't know what you want to do with your life. The most interesting people I know didn't know at 22 what they wanted to do with their lives. Some of the most interesting 40-year-olds I know still don't. Get plenty of calcium. Be kind to your knees. You'll miss them when they're gone. Maybe you marry, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll have children, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll divorce at 40, maybe you'll dance the funky chicken on your 75th wedding anniversary. Whatever you do, don't congratulate yourself too much. Operate yourself either. Your choices or half chances, so are everybody else's. Enjoy your body. Use it every way you can. Don't be afraid of it, but what other people think of it? It's the greatest instrument you'll ever own. Dance. Even if you have nowhere to do it but your living room. Read the directions, even if you don't follow them. Do not read beauty magazines. They will only make you feel ugly. Get to know your parents. You never know when they're going to be gone for good. Be nice to your siblings. They're the best link of your past to the people most likely to stick with you in the future. Understand that friends come alone, but with a precious few you should hold on. Work hard to bridge the gaps in geography and lifestyle, because the older you get, the more you need the people who knew you when you were young. Live in New York City once, but leave before it makes you hard. Live in North California once, but leave before it makes you soft. Travel. Accept certain inalienable truths. Prices will rise, politicians will philander, you too will get old. And then you'll do, you'll fantasize that when you were young, prices were reasonable, politicians were noble, and children... You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is a Renegade Soul. Everybody's free to wear sunscreen. I'm Samuel Mansoyers Bay Dunedin with Samuel Murray in South Dunedin. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. But trust me, 
I'm the sunscreen. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.